absolutely fantastic worship, and we hope that you are uh, uh, worshiping at home and enjoying that and uh, drawing close to God in the process. Have I told you I missed you yet? I, I know I have, and we can't wait to get everybody back together, but <clears throat> for now, uh, this is how we're doing church, and I'm super glad that you've decided to join us today online. So we're starting a new series today called 316. And here's the deal with this series. Hands down, as many of us know, the most popular and well-known Bible verse, at least in our day and age, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's a distillation of the gospel in one sentence, one verse, John 3, 16, and it's arguably the most popular Bible verse in our modern era. Sports figures quoted all the time. Uh, guys like Tim Tebow, when he was playing, would paint it under their, his eyes. Billy Graham, when he was alive, used this verse all the time in his preaching and interviews. Countless children Learn this verse in Sunday school and VBS and Awana. And then you have this nut. Some of you will remember him. I'm dating myself. Uh, but he was known as Rockin' Roland. His name was Roland Stewart or the Rainbow Man. And back in the 1980s, this guy logged 60,000 miles a year and went to all sorts of sporting events. Many of you will remember this with a sign or a shirt that said John 3.16 on it. And he became known as the John 3.16 guy. And it was all over the news, all over uh, media at that time. And some of you thought I was kind of hard by calling him a nut. He kind of was. Uh, back in the early 1990s, he ended up getting in trouble with a gun, not a good testimony, and, and is now serving uh, three life sentences in jail. So not a good ending to that one. But he did... It put John 3.16 on the map in a unique way in our modern culture. John 3.16, a wonderful distillation of the, uh, of the gospel, the most popular Bible verse in the 20th, now 21st century. But here's the deal. As some, if not many of us know, there are plenty of other 3.16 passages in the Bible. There are. In fact, I'll let you in on something right now. There's about 60 of them in the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, and there are six books that don't have three chapters. They have less than three, so there's 60 of them that have three chapters, and most of the 60 have 16 verses. And so out of nothing but scriptural curiosity, I spent some time last summer during my study break looking up each and every one of the other 316 passages. I looked them all up, and what I found was what you might expect in God's Word, and that is that many of the other 316 passages in the Bible were likewise succinct, profound, and absolutely insightful, if not life-altering, as John 316 is. And so there's other 316 passages that we need to dial into because they communicate stuff that you and I need to know. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a series on this, to thematically look at some of the other 316 passages in the Bible and see what they teach us. And that's what we're going to do this spring here at our church. And it's going to be a rich time. We're going to look at topics like truth, injustice, love, peace, 
even deep theological topics like the nature of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, all found in various three sixteen passages. And so who would have thought that we could do something like this? Well, God did. <laughs> and it's going to be a great series. You're going to grow and learn some things and maybe even be changed along the way. So with that brief introduction to this series, we're going to dive in to our topic today, which is truth. Why don't you all bow with me right now and let's ask, God, ask God's blessing on this time. Our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time of worship that we've experienced uh, here today and, and for all of us who are, who are in online. And God, I thank you that we have the technology in our day and age to do this, even in this, this awful time of pandemic where we need to, to isolate ourselves to protect the most vulnerable in our culture. God, I thank you that we can still worship together in this way. And so Lord, uh, 55 plus years ago, you allowed us to uh, start a church here called Scottsdale Bible Church. And Lord, our commitment to you has been to be faithful to your glory, faithful to your truth, faithful to your word. And we want to talk, Lord, about what that looks like today. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you bless our time? Would you give us insight and wisdom into the nature of truth and how your word bears upon the truth that we all seek in this world? That's my prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And as if we were all together, we say, amen. So I want you to picture Jesus standing before the governor of Judea, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Many of you have heard of him. Jesus is 33 years old now. He uh, had been handed over to Pilate by the Jewish leaders who wanted Pilate to condemn Jesus to death. Jesus claimed, rightly so, to be the son of God, the king of the Jews, and they didn't like that, so they wanted him shut up and they wanted him to die. But Pilate, finding no reason to kill Jesus under Roman law, decides to do an extended interview with Jesus. And at one point in their discussion, Jesus mentions to Pilate that his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not of this world, that his kingdom is from another place. And Pilate jumps on that and he says, so you do claim to be a king then? And Jesus kind of says, well, you're, 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 you're kind of running with that. I mean, kingdom king. I mean, you're, you're essentially right, but that's not the point. And, and then Jesus utters these famous words to Pilate when he says this. He says, look, Pilate, the reason that I was born, the reason that I came into this world was to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth is going to listen to me. To which Pilate, fully engaged at that point, responds with a simple but profound question. He asks Jesus, John 18, 38, what is truth? Jesus opened up the barn door of this idea of truth. Pilate is interested like many of us would be, and he asks, what is truth? What a great question. I have to assume that every thinking person on planet Earth has asked this question at some point. How would you, how would you, how would you answer this question if somebody asked you, what is truth? Because we all want truth. We all want to know what is Trump. We want to dial into that which is real and that which is right. We want truth. And wouldn't you know that one of the Bible's other 316 passages 
directly deals head on with this idea of truth and even the discovery of truth. So here's what I want to do in our time remaining today. We've got about 30, 35 minutes, and I want to do two things. You're going to like this. First, I want to give you a good working definition of truth to get us all on the same page as to what we are after. That's going to settle the issue on what truth is. But then, more importantly, I'm going to share with you three things that the Bible affirms about the nature of truth that's going to lead us like a little on-ramp up to, up to our next, our first 316 passage and will help us understand why truth is so critical and how we even find it in this confusing and messed up world of ours. So first, let's all just get on the same page. Here is a good working definition of truth. Watch this, that just about everybody on planet Earth, from academicians to skeptics to scholars to barroom people, everybody agrees with this definition of truth. And it's this, that truth is simply concepts, statements, and or properties which define reality. Let me repeat that. Truth is simply concepts, statements, and or properties which define reality. I derived this this definition of truth from multiple sources, not the least of which is Webster's famous dictionary, which has a very similar definition. This is essentially an agreed upon definition of truth. The truth is any statement that you would make, any thought that you would have, any property that you confront in this world that defines what is real, that defines what is that shows you the factuality of a statement, concept, or property. So, for instance, very simplistically speaking, I'm going to make this statement. Jamie is a 56-year-old man who has a lot less hair than he did when he moved to the desert 13 years ago. That's the statement I'm making. Jamie, your pastor, is a 56-year-old man who has a lot less hair than he did 13 years ago when he moved to the desert. Rather simple statement. I'm gonna to submit to you that that statement, that simple statement communicates no less than six truths. We do this all the time, but you'll get why this is important in a minute. First, I told you my name, Jamie. You can check my birth certificate. You can do a, an audit of the history of my entire 56 years. You'll find that my name is Jamie. It's true. I told you my age, secondly. It's mathematically verifiable. I'm on my 56th year of life. Thirdly, I told you my sex, male. Even in this messed up day and age, it's still anatomically verifiable. I'm not going any further with that uh, to prove that I am a male. I told you, fourthly, that I've had hair loss. I, if you look at the picture of me 13 years ago when I came here, I had a full head of hair. Now, after the stress that all of you have given me, I have very little hair. I currently reside in the desert. That's the fifth thing I told you. Again, that's from a location standpoint, verifiable. And then lastly, I communicated to you that I've been here 13 years, also verifiable. Don't miss this. It sounds so simple, but in one statement, I made no less than six truth claims, all claims that define reality. And the point is, you and I do this all the time. All day long, each and every day, we make statements, we have thoughts, 
we confront properties in various things. And if these statements, concepts, or properties uh, co correspond to reality and we can verify it, then we have what is known as truth. And conversely, if they do not correspond to reality, then we have falsehood or a lack of truth. So if I had said to you a few minutes ago that Jamie is a 26-year-old stud with a full head of hair and has resided in countries all over the world, you would immediately say, <clears throat> we must be talking about another Jamie, because that would not be our pastor. That would be untrue, and you would be right. But the only reason you'd be right is that it doesn't correspond. It doesn't define reality. Truth defines reality. It's that simple. It's not complicated. And when a concept, statement, or property rightly does this, you have truth. When it does not, you have falsehood. Now, let's accelerate. With this clear and pretty much agreed upon understanding of what truth is, the obvious question that we all should be asking right now is how then do we discover and discern truth? In other words, what processes or tools are at, are at, our, at our disposal to know what is real in the world around us? It's a really good question, one that scholars have been thinking about and working through for thousands of years now from the Greeks to the Romans to the Middle, Age, Middle Ages to the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, to our modern world. People have been wondering, and how do we discover what truth is? Here's what you guys are going to like. It's here that the Bible becomes immensely helpful. And this leads us to the first thing that it shares with us about truth that will eventually lead us to our first 316 passage. But first, here's what the Bible shares as a precursor. And that is that God has wired us, you and me, to discover or find truth in this world in multiple or various ways. Let me repeat that. God has wired us. We are hardwired from creation in his image to discover and find truth, what is real in various ways. And so here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to give you a, a rather brief but helpful sampling of the various ways that the Bible says God has hardwired human beings to discover what is real and true. And I'm going to give you a quick caveat right now. This is almost going to feel for the next five to seven minutes like an Arizona State University philosophy lecture. In other words, if you've ever taken a philosophy class and studied what we call epistemology, which is how we know what we know, it's the study of how people know, I'm going to share with you some things that are going to seem eerily similar to what you might have heard in that class. But here's what I'm going to point out, is that the Bible talked about these things way before your philosophy professor did. <laughs> the Bible talked about these things way before our modern world got into this. This is a biblically valid approach that we're taking to truth here. So real quickly, four ways at least that the Bible says we can discover truth. The first is through what we call empiricism. Empiricism. Empiricism is simply sensory experience. It's when we use our five physical senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, uh, smelling, those five senses to discover the world around us. 
Our entire scientific discoveries in our world today have been built upon what we call empiricism or sensory experience to discover what is real and true. And what you simply need to know is that the Bible declared this thousands of years ago. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Wow, it's saying that God has given us the kind of creation that wants to reveal to us what it is about and through our sensory experience, through through scientists and others experiencing and, and understanding this world around us through empirical study, we can grow in our knowledge and find out what truth is. Uh, people like John Locke and David Hume during the Enlightenment made this idea of empiricism very popular. I'm here to tell you today that the Bible upstreamed this thing long before that. Now, notice a second way that the Bible says that we can discover what is true, and that is through rationality, simply using our mind uh, and reasoning powers to discover what is real and what is true. It's a philosophical approach, just thinking about the world around, around us and reasoning to discover truth. And again, the Bible's really clear on this. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. So when Israel was going off the deep end and, and getting into sinful things, God said, let's reason together. Let's think about this. Let's discover what is true. And God did that because he understands how we're wired, that we are thinking people that can reason. And again, you know, during times like the Enlightenment, you know, two or three hundred years ago and other movements in history, we think we discovered this with things like laws of logic and a philosophical approach to this world. And in some ways we did, but the Bible upstreamed this one long before the philosophers came along. So you have empiricism, you have rationality. A third way the Bible affirms that we can discover what is true is through experience. (laughs) Some of you are going to like this through simply the school of hard knocks, through making mistakes and learning and discovering what is real through our experiences. And again, I'm going to show you in a minute how our modern world thinks they invented this idea to truth. But first, the Bible talked about this thousands of years ago. And talking about Israel, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happened to them as an example to us. They were written down for our instruction. So we learn from the mistakes of our ancestors not to do those things again. We learn what is true. And then Proverbs 24, 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. I love that passage. Simply saying that, you know, in life you're going to stumble and learn and stumble and learn and stumble and learn, but each time you get up and you say, eventually I'm not going to do that anymore. But some people are so dense that they keep stumbling and never learn. But those that are righteous and good, they learn. William James is a father of what we call modern-day pragmatism. He argued simply that, that what is true is what works. Only that which is work that has, has pragmatic value is, is that which is true. And again, in many ways, William James was right, but the Bible beat him to the punch on that. The Bible said years ago that we learn through our experiences. It's one of the ways that we discover truth. So you got empiricism, sense experience, rationality, using our mind, 
pragmatism, experience. And, and then a fourth and final way, and then we'll put all this together. And this fourth one's going to throw some of you, but, I, but I'm here to tell you today, again, check with your ASU professor or wherever you went. This is actually a valid epistemological category, and it's called intuition. Intuition. Uh, simply uh, the reality that there's times where you and I go, I just know it's right. I feel it's right. I, I think it's right. And even though reasoning doesn't tell me it completely, I just get the sense that this is true. All of us have had that experience. The Bible puts it this way. Job 38, verse 36, God is speaking and he asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? The answer, God has. Sometimes we just get wisdom in our inward parts that something is true, understanding to our mind. I like how Romans 2.15 says that it's talking about those who have no religious or spiritual history. They don't know anything about the Bible or God. And it says that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences bear witness. And so call it wisdom, call it conscience, call it heart or feeling. There's times where we just know something is right. There's an intuition in the human soul. And now, folks, this is just a sampling of the various and multiple ways that we discover truth. Using our senses, empiricism, our minds, rationality, our experiences, pragmatism, or even our intuition. Again, those who study this call this epistemology. It's the study of how we know that we can know. And they've affirmed these for centuries, but the Bible has affirmed them for thousands of years, way before our modern world got into this. Why? With this, we're going to move on. Because God has wired us to discover truth. He has made us in his image and he has wired us to be thinking, feeling, behaving, practical type of people who can discover truth in the way that God has made us. And the reason that this is so important for us to dial into, the reason that we spend about 15 minutes setting this up, other than the fact that the Bible teaches this, is because this is the way that the vast majority of people in our modern world discover truth. Think about it. This is the way that the vast majority of people in the 21st century go about finding truth. Our modern world, with all of our first world advances, stemming from the European Enlightenment to the Industrial Revolution to the Technological Revolution to now the Digital Revolution, we have progressed and exploded with a discovery of knowledge and truth the likes of which have never been seen in the history of the known world. And primarily, we have discovered truth in our modern world through these biblically valid categories of scientific empiricism, philosophical, philosophical rationalism, and then rugged pragmatism. And again, not to freak you out too much, but once again, the Bible predicted this 2,500 years ago. It predicted our day and age. It was revealed to the prophet Daniel that before the end comes, now look at this in Daniel 12, 4, it says, before the end comes, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Whoa, that should almost freak us out. That there would come a time 
when many would run to and fro, kind of like a modern day era, and knowledge would increase before the end comes. And the way that our modern world has increased in knowledge is a way never before seen in the history of the world. And they've basically done it through empirical discovery, rationalism, pragmatism, and even intuition. We've had advances in mass transportation, science, education, internet, food distribution, healthcare, and they've all come from a discovery of truth in the four ways that we just looked at. And again, these are all good and fine ways, clearly God-ordained ways of discovering truth. He made us this way. And all is good and fine, and we've created a good life, or have we? <laughs> have we really? Because I want to share with you right now, we're going to turn the corner, something that our modern world has missed. I, I want to share with you right now something that our modern world has glossed over, has essentially poo-pooed when it comes to the nature of truth and how truth is to be discovered and tapped into in the world that God has given us. And it's the second of our three points today. It brings us finally to our first 316 passage in this series, and it's this. And that is that God's revelation through his word both directs and completes our discovery of truth. This is what our modern world so desperately needs to hear. That many of us here today know this, our modern world needs to get this. God's revelation through his word both directs and completes our discovery of truth. In other words, here's the deal. God knows that left to our own devices to discover truth, using things like our senses, our minds, our feelings, and our experiences, it will not be enough to get us to the place that our soul desires. Our natural abilities are not sufficient, as gifted and wonderful as they are. We need direct help from above. We need what God calls his revelation to us. We need him to speak to us, not just through our finite rational thinking, not just through our messed up feelings, not just through our up and down experiences, but through a direct means straight from him. We need revelation. And thankfully, God has seen fit to provide this. And it both completes as well as directs Pilate's original question. What is truth? <laughs> when you understand that God has seen fit to give us truth. And now, and only now, are we ready for our first 316 passage. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'm also going to include verse 17 so we get the context right. And hopefully now, this passage will make sense to you with the long ramp up that we've done. Here it is, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. <laughs> Whoa. I, I want to break this passage down like I do quite often by focusing on some of the pieces I put in yellow so that we understand this rightly. Because this is a game changer if there ever was one 
in these areas of epistemology of, of trying to find out what is truth. Notice it begins by saying all scripture, all scripture. Interesting word, it's the Greek word graphe in the New Testament. It appears about 20 to 25 times and Jesus used this word a lot. The word literally means writings, graphe, you know, where you write. And Jesus used this word almost exclusively to refer to the Old Testament. He used it all the time to talk about the writings say this and the writings say that. And he underlined it as things that would come from God. These writings that came from God as found in the Old Testament books. That's what he means by the scriptures and so in the context here, it probably still is referring to the Old Testament, but eventually it would include the New Testament. How do we know this? Well, we know this because eventually the gospel writers would come along and write about the gospels. Then Paul the apostle would come along and write 13 letters. And listen to how Peter, now this is going to blow you away, in another 316 passage. So in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, look at what Peter says using this same word graphe here, uh, when it comes to Paul's writings. He says, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things which some find hard to understand and which untaught and unstable people distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. Graphe, writings. So don't miss what's happening here. Peter is calling Paul's letters inspired by God. We'll see how that works in a minute here as part of these writings, these graphe, these scriptures that are somehow, as we'll see in a second here, God breathed. So we have these writings, we have these scriptures contained in the Bible here. It's a complete Bible. And notice, this is the revelation part, how these came to be. This is the second yellow thing I, I highlighted for you. They are breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot at you right now, but dial into this one. Don't, don't sleep through this. This is really important. This phrase in the English Standard Version, breathed out by God, four words, breathed out by God, is one word in the original Greek. And get this, it's a made-up word. <laughs> Paul made up a word, kind of like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. He made up a word in the Greek in order to communicate this concept that we translate into four words here in the English, breathed out by God. And the way Paul made up this word, the word is theonoustos, theonoustos, is he took two very common Greek words, theos, that means God, and pneuma, where we get the English word pneumatic from, that means air, a pneumatic tire has air in it. He took theos, theos, and pneuma, put it together, and said theosnoustos, which means the air of God, the breath of God, breathing out through these scriptures. Don't you love that? In other words, it's telling us that when we read these writings, when we read these scriptures, it's like God is breathing his words, breathing his truth, breathing his will, breathing his feelings in and through them to you and me. It's his revelation directly to you and me. And the reason that we know that 
is because then he goes on to say, and it's profitable, it's useful for teaching, that means doctrine, those things which are true, for reproof and correction, meaning that when things get tilted, these will make you right, and then for training in righteousness. That word training is sometimes translated discipline in other translations. It simply means athletic training, athletic discipline. So for those of you who are kind of manly or womanly people that work out all the time, what's saying here is that this book, these writings are given so that you can train your soul to be strong in the truth of who God is and what this world is about. So add it all up. We're going to move on right now. The Bible is God's way to make sure that we have enough and complete truth to know him and get along in this fallen world of ours. He gives us his revelation in his word in order to make sure, now don't miss this, that with all the other ways that we attempt to discover truth that we covered earlier, that we have clear direction whenever there is any doubt. And this illustration has helped me for years. The reason I spend some time going over these other four ways we discover truth, empiricism, rationality, pragmatism, and intuition that the Bible all affirms, is that when you think about it, those are ground-up ways for us to discover truth and the world around us. In other words, they begin with us, our rationality, our sense experience, our pragmatism, our intuition. And though they're given by God, they begin with us, so it's kind of like from us outward or ground-up we attempt to discover the truth of this world and, and philosophers and, 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 and metaphysicists and others try to discover even the spiritual realm using these four areas. And yet what we need to see today is that the Bible says those are limited because what God has done, now watch this, is that as we try to discover truth ground up, he comes along and says, I think I'm gonna give you a little bit of heaven down kind of truth. But what I write about in my first book on how joyful people think, transcendent truth, truth from above, so that our attempts to discover truth, which are all good and fine, God says, I'm going to complete and I'm going to guide with a little bit of direct help from above when it comes to this special revelation. Theologians actually have categories for this, that ground up approach to truth they call natural theology. It's things that we can discover about this world and God just on our own. But then God has seen fit to give us special revelation or special theology from his word. And what you need to understand, if you don't hear anything else today, please understand this. And that is that heaven down revelation always trumps ground up discovery. Let me repeat that because our world gets really messed up. Even a lot of Christians are messed up here. Heaven down revelation is contained in the Bible, always trumps, it was why it was given, our ground-up discovery of truth, meaning that there's a lot of Christians out there even today that are trying to discover truth, which is fine, using their senses and their thinking and all that, but if it ever goes against what the Bible clearly says, then there's no choice here. Heaven down always trumps ground up. Let me give you a couple of examples real quickly here. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a Christian or maybe just anybody in general say to me, and I hear it all the time, well, I think God is this way or I think God is that way. Let's use the example of his anger. 
you know, I, I hear Christians say, well, God is an angry God, you know, and Jonathan Edwards was right. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he's mad at culture, and his wrath is being unleashed on us, and, da, da, da. and then I hear other Christians say, no, 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 he's gentle, and he's kind, and it's his mercy that leads us to repentance, and, da, da, da. and we seem to have this, the, 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 these two options of God, either Old Testament or New Testament, and I sit there and go, man, that's just your own thinking. And that's just you trying to think what you think about God. The Bible actually has settled this issue. If you allow the heaven down stuff into your life, you'd realize this, that yes, there is an aspect in which God can get angry. It's recorded a lot in the Old Testament. We even see it in the New. There is such thing called his wrath and his anger. But here's the deal. And that is the Bible makes it clear, Romans 1, that his wrath is being reserved right now. It's being held back as he patiently waits for all to come to repentance. And so, yeah, there might be an aspect in which God's anger, and we see it even in the Old Testament, but right now, man, he's just holding that thing back because he loves all of creation. He wants his creation to come to him, and he grieves over all of our sin. And so there's incredible grace and mercy that does not abrogate his anger, but it does hold it back until the time that the end comes. Again, the Bible adds clarity to that. This might even hit more closer to home. Here's a second example. I hear people say quite often when it comes to their lifestyle, how can something that feels so good be so wrong? You ever heard a Christian say that? So you might be uh, involved in illicit sex, either before marriage or in marriage or doing something else, and somebody confronts you on it. You say, well, how can something that feels so good be so wrong? Again, what you're doing there, and and I empathize with it, is that you're essentially uh, doing a ground-up approach to your Christian experience, you're saying, you know, from a pragmatic level, it feels just fine. And, you know, according to my thinking, it, if it feels good, how can it be so wrong? And you're using all these ground up ways to discover truth. The issue you might need to wrestle with today is that the Bible actually has settled that one for you. It says that given our fallen souls, there are plenty of things in this world that will feel good, but that God has declared not healthy to our lives, like sex before marriage. Uh, illicit sex within marriage, and plenty of other things. And, and again, it's funny, we teach our kids this, it's just we have trouble learning it as adults. I mean, if your kid comes to you and, and, and sees what you're making for dinner and, and sees that it's vegetables and some healthy protein and says, no, 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 I want cake, I want a candy bar, and I'm not gonna you know, let go until you give me that, you're gonna say to your kid, I, I don't care, you're, you're getting the good food. And what would you if your kid said to you, but mom, how can cake be so bad? It feels so good. How could something that feels so good be so wrong? You'd say, well, I know cake feels better than broccoli, but you need broccoli. Trust me, I'm a good parent. I know what your body needs. We make that argument with our kid. Could it be that God makes the same one with us? But if you confine yourself to these four ways of discovering truth that our world does, Sensory experience and rationality and empiricism and even intuition, which again are all going to find. But if you confine yourself to those and you do not heed what God's word says, <laughs> then at the end of the day, you're going to be no different than your kid that wants to go to the route of cake and candy bars rather than what his body really needs. See, God knows best, and heaven down always trumps ground up. Now, we're fast out of time. And so one extremely important third point before we wrap up, and with this we'll be done, but this one brings it all together, is this. And that is that God's revelation, as we're seeing today, is only helpful to those of us who will believe and receive it. And this is my, where my heart just breaks for the world around us today. Because they're into all these other four areas of truth 
They're resisting this one, and this will not help them. It won't help us unless we believe and receive it. And again, that's where verse 17 is so important. One last look at this passage. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now why? So that, the result being, that the servant of God, or the man or woman of God, I'm doing this in the NIV now, you'll see why, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, if you don't embrace verse 16, the result of verse 17 (laughs) will never be true for you. You will not be the servant of God that your soul needs to be and that God wants you to be. You will not be thoroughly equipped for the world ahead. The point is, God's revelation is for everyone. He desires all to know it and embrace it and to find that completion and that direction that we need in our search for truth. But the reality is, only those who embrace it, who believe and receive, will get anything out of it and truly know him and be prepared for life ahead. So here's my final statement to you, and this is true. And that is that when it comes to God's word, let's be men and women who read it, know it, and follow it. That's why we teach the Bible so regularly here, because in a rich, profound way, we believe it is the source of truth that God has for us, built on all the other ones, but it's the queen, it's the king, of all of our sources of truth. And we need to read it, we need to know it, we need to follow it. We just need to stop being hypocrites and be men and women of the word. All I know is that that's my commitment, I'm in it with you. What a great first look at a 316 passage. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray before we're wrapped up here. Father, thank you for uh, your truth. Thank you for even Pontius Pilate who asked Jesus that very famous, wonderful question, what is truth. Because Lord, there's a lot of people today still whom you know desire to know truth. They want truth. They want to know what is real, what is Trump, what is up. And God, thank you that your word gives us direction here. Thank you, God, that you've made us to be intelligent, creative human beings who can discover plenty of truth around us using our senses, our minds, our experiences, even our, our intuition. And Lord, thank you too that you revealed to us that at the end of the day, that's not enough that you've seen fit to even help us more by giving us your revelation. So Lord, we wanna be men and women of your word. We wanna be men and women who read it, know it, and follow it, even at a high cost, God, because we know as your children that you know what's best for us. So Lord, as we're at home right now, sheltering in place, may we think about these things, God. May we give cogent thought to this, and more than anything, Lord, may our wills be bent toward you because we know you love us. We know you care for us. We want to know you and follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.